seated. encourage you to take a copy of the Word of God and open it to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, and I'll read in our hearing the first three verses of this Gospel according to Mark. I've been waiting to welcome Josh. Welcome, Josh. Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. May we hear God's Word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. Let's pray together. Father, for Your Word, we're grateful. We thank You that it is true, it is constant, it is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is a safe guide and rule for faith and life and our practices, our religious activities and exercises of faith. Bless it now in our presence by your most blessed and holy presence. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. February 1942, President Franklin Roosevelt ordered General Douglas MacArthur to leave the Philippines. He was afraid that the general would either be captured or killed, and that would be quite a terrible blow uh, to the American Uh, psyche, particularly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor just a couple of months before. So he told MacArthur to leave the Philippines and to relocate uh, in Australia. So the general, his wife, and a young son and members of his staff boarded, I think it was either four or six, I can't recall, PT boats, and they began a very arduous, dangerous journey through uh, Japanese patrolled water, stormy seas, airplanes flying over, uh, enemy airplanes, aircraft, so forth. And they finally arrive at another uh, island on the uh, Philippine uh, Islands, and from there they catch a plane and they fly out to Australia where they catch a train. And finally he arrives where he's supposed to be in Australia. And on March 17th, uh, MacArthur said, I came through and I shall return. Now, I suppose what's remembered of that phrase is the last three words, I shall return. Then, some two and a half years later, October 20, 1944, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of casualties later, MacArthur comes ashore at Leyte Island in the Philippines, and he says, people of the Philippines, I have returned. And I suppose of that, phrase, what we remember is, I have returned. And so we remember, I shall return, and I have returned. This past week, I went to town. I told Gail when I left, going to town, I'll be back. A few hours later, I got back. I said, honey, I'm home. I've I've returned. Now, why are the words of Douglas MacArthur momentous historical words and what I said to Gail a few days ago nobody knows or cares so why are MacArthur's words why are they momentous historical words and why are my words not well the answer is context and what do we say so important when we study the Bible context 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 So we've been in the Gospel of Mark now. Actually, we've been standing outside sort of admiring the the structure. We haven't really opened the door so much and gone in to really begin to to gaze on and be blessed by the the particulars of, of what Mark says so much. But we've been standing outside looking at the context, context. In Sermon 1, we considered something we might might call the literary context. Um, 
We notice that the book is concise, it's vivid, it's rapid, and we looked at the author. So we noted something about the, the literary context of the book. Last week we noted something what we might call the biblical context. We, we focused on that phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I'll just say to you that we're here last week, remember Moses. You have begun to show your servant your greatness. And this is the beginning of the gospel. And we looked at there are two great advents of which time is divided by and identified. There is the first advent of Christ and there is the second advent of Christ. And so we, we went into that. And in the first advent, we had the inauguration of the kingdom of God. In the second advent, we have the consummation, the fruition of the kingdom of God. Well, today... We want to look at that third context. We want to continue. Context, context, context. I'm ready to get into the book, but uh, I want one more, one more shot at context. And I want to consider with you today what we might call the biblical and providential context. And to me, this is very, very important. Remember, Mark, we believe, is probably the first gospel. Okay. And the Old Testament ends with Malachi. And then the next time we hear from God is Mark. Well, and I know James, but, but Mark is the gospel, first gospel, let me put it that way. What I want us to think about today is that period of time in between Malachi and Mark. And I want us to notice the providential hand of God mm-hmm. in that time. Now, the Gospel of Mark opens with a remarkable and instructive statement. Verse number 2, we have an authoritative formula. And the Greek, it would be grapho, it is written. Now, this is a formula that was used on legal documents um, that would imply uh, the the force of the document. And so if you had a, a will or some other document, legal document you were trying to execute, and it, had, it has written, it's carrying the legal force of that document. Well, we find this, this phrase, and particularly in the Old Testament, it asserts the moral authority of what's being said. So we say, and I know it might not have it as written in front of it, but, but to make a point. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why? Because this is God's Word. We could say it is written. In many places in the Old Testament we find that it is written and whatever then follows that. And that's given it its moral authority. Hear what is being said. This is not the opinion of man. This is the decree and will of God being expressed. And so we, we Mark opens with this rather uh, very telling statement. It is written. And so it's a very authoritative statement. This is the moral authority of what he's saying. Now, in verses 2 and 3, he says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet. Well, another thing that makes this statement very interesting is this is the only occurrence in the Gospel of Mark where Mark himself will quote an Old Testament passage. This is it. Now, he will quote Jesus who quotes an Old Testament passage. Don't, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But this is, Mark, this is the only editorial comment by Mark where he references and quotes from the Old Testament directly, personally, himself. And so when I see that, I go, oh, wow, that must be something. And he starts out with this, this authoritative formula. It is written. And then he quotes the one quote that we have by him in the entire gospel from the Old Testament. Again, he'll cite Jesus where Jesus will say it is written or uh, this was done to fulfill that or whatever. So yeah, he quotes other people, but this is Mark's only editorial comment on it. Now, you recall that Mark's audience is primarily Gentile, in particular Roman Christians. Mostly Gentile. There's some Jewish Jewish people that's in that congregation, but it's primarily a Gentile congregation. And so Mark 
doesn't quote a lot from the Old Testament. Matthew does. You go through the Gospel of Matthew and it over and over and over uh, Matthew is referring to some reference from the Old Testament. Well, he's primarily writing to a Jewish people. Mark's primarily writing to a Gentile audience. And that also helps us understand and frame something else that's going to be very important in the Gospel of Mark, and that is the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew will never call it the kingdom of God. Why? Because the Jewish people had an aversion to pronouncing Yahweh or God. They would not say that name. So Matthew plugs in another formula, the kingdom of heaven. Mark, kingdom of God. And same thing, it's just different audiences, different, a different uh, way of describing the same thing. So why does, why does the gospel of Mark open in this way? Why does Mark begin like this? Well, it's, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Well, it's similar to the way Paul opens Romans, the book of Romans. And that book, Paul says in Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Well, Paul does the same thing. He takes us back at the very beginning of his epistle, puts our mind, and links it with the Old Testament. Mark does the same thing. Al Martin comments on this particular uh, uh, device of Mark in calling us back to the Old Testament. He says, These words constitute an assertion of the fundamental unity between the Old and New Testaments. That there is a oneness between the two Testaments. He's going to tell us about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but first he quotes from the Old Testament. Ah, so, I hear about this Christ you're going to present, Mark, in the Old Testament? Yes. And that's the so what when we look at this and go, well, so what? What's the big deal here? Uh, so, Mark is directing our attention to the Old Testament, and that helps you and me in our study and understanding of the Bible. That you don't divide one from the other. The New Testament does not cancel the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not cancel the New Testament. It doesn't tower above it. They're complementary books with one focus, and that one focus is in one person, and that person is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know the old saying, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And so we see something of that here even in the beginning of Mark. Then we come to verses 2 and 3 where Mark gives the quote. And he says he's going to quote Isaiah. And then he quotes Malachi. Verse 2 is Malachi. He says, I'm going to quote, As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Well, search as you will, through all 66 chapters of Isaiah, you will not find that phrase. It's not there. But, it's in Malachi. And it's from Malachi chapter 3, the first verse, the first part of that verse. Then in verse number 3, Mark does in fact quote from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the question is, you look at that and you go, Well, Mark, you told me you're going to quote Isaiah, and then you turn around and you quote Malachi. What's going on? Why do you conflate two different prophecies as if they're just a singular, as it, as it, as it seems like, well, some translations of the Bible will try to get away from this and try to avoid this by translating Isaiah, the prophets. They will say, as it is written in the prophets. Eh, that's not really a good translation there. But they're trying to avoid what seems like a problem. So, we ask the question. Mark, you tell us you're going to quote from Isaiah, and yet you give me Malachi. And then secondly, 
you give me Isaiah. Why do you do that, Mark? Well, if you don't believe the Bible, and you're an unbeliever, and you don't have faith when you come to the Scripture, you go there and you go, oh, here's a mistake right here. You mean tell me you believe in this? And right here, in the very, very beginning of the Gospel according to Mark, he makes an error. I don't think so. Well, maybe God, maybe Mark's just ignorant of the Old Testament. Maybe he just doesn't know who he's quoting. Nah, I don't really think that flies too good either. I don't really think that's the answer. I like the way Hendrickson puts uh, answers this, and this is a response from faith, not unbelief. But the, in Hendrickson's response to this is, is one of faith, and he writes. What right do we have to impose our own method of citation upon the authors of Scripture? Who am I to tell God who directed Mark, well, that's not right. So I like the way he starts out, and that that is a response of faith. So who, who am I to say that citation is wrong? And then I think with tongue in cheek, Hendrickson goes on to say, Mark promises to give us one thing and then gives us two. Why should we complain? Oh, here's the dollar. By the way, it's ten. Oh, well, I'm going to complain about that. So he didn't just give us one. He gave us two quotes. And this form of citation where you give a quote and, and you're in that quote, you, you attribute it to a prophet or somebody, but actually you've got two or three people under that is not unusual in literature. And if you read and you look at footnotes and citations and bibliographies, you'll often find that a book might be cited by its, what might be considered its major author, but there are others who write too. So that's, that's one way of looking at it. But I think in this particular case, when Mark cites this, uh, he says it's from Isaiah and he gives us Malachi and then he quotes Isaiah, I really think it adds clarity. Because if I read in Isaiah about a voice crying in the wilderness, I go, well, who's the voice? What's the voice all about? What's its purpose? I know there's a voice. Is, is this some voice from, you know, from heaven? Is it some sort of you know, ethereal uh, spiritual disembodied voice what is this voice oh well Malachi tells me he explains that voice to me he tells me this voice is the voice of the forerunner of Jesus Christ the messenger and so when I read that and I see this and I go oh well that messenger is indicative and he's real and it's John the Baptist. He's real and he comes preaching and baptizing those who repent. And, and, and so I understand that, that the Messiah that God has promised is coming through Jesus Christ and John the Baptist is indicating it's here. And so it gives me context. Well, moving from these two prophecies for just a moment to a more general thought with you. There is a plethora, that means a bunch, there's a bunch of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ. Alfred Edersheim, if you've ever read any of Alfred Edersheim, he writes a lot about Bible, or he did write a lot about Bible history. And I think it's in his book, uh, Jesus Christ the Messiah. But he says there's some 456 Old Testament Verses that refer to Christ. That's a lot. Now, I haven't gone through to try to count them all. See if he's right. Maybe there's 457. Maybe there's 500. I don't know. But, but the point is there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ. Conspicuous among all those Messianic prophecies is the reality of the vastness, the inclusive nature of this kingdom and of this king. Did you hear what I said? Which, what seems to just really stand out on all these prophecies 
about Christ is the vastness and the inclusive nature of His kingdom, of His salvation. Let me give you an example. Here's a smattering. Genesis 12, 3. In you, speaking to Abraham, but it's through his seed that all families of the earth will be blessed. Right out of the gate. There's the global inheritance of the Messiah. Psalm 2. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. When Habakkuk thought, God, where are you? This world is upside down and bad is good and good is bad. And Lord, what are you doing? Why are you silent? The Lord encouraged Habakkuk by saying, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, the vastness of the kingdom of Christ. Isaiah which tells us so much about the Messiah, has a rich tapestry of Messianic prophecies. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then what does he tell me? Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. Wow. Wow. Isaiah 49, verse 6. The Father says, It's too light a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, speaking of His suffering servant, I will make you as the light for the nations. There it is. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 60, verse 5, this is just a few. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. We go, wow. Look at this king. Look at this king's kingdom. Wow. It's impressive. It's vast. It's inclusive. Well, how can that be? Oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, thou who art so small. How can... Something so large come from a little, I'm going to call it backwater village. In the reality of history in the world. You want to talk about world powers, and we'll do this in a minute. But we're talking Rome, Egypt, the Persian Empire. We're talking vast cities. And yet we are saying, oh, but God promised that His servant is coming from a little insignificant place and yet from there it will circumvent the globe. How? Oh, how can this be? Well, for context... Let's look between the Testaments or between the Covenants. The Old Testament was once called the Old Covenant when you read that part of the Bible. And the New Testament was called the New Covenant. So let's look in between the Testaments for a minute. Now, I have constantly and consistently, I should say, tried to encourage you to distinguish between what is miraculous and what is providential. A lot of times we use the term, it's a miracle, and it's no such thing. 
and I have over the years consistently encouraged you to make that distinction. I've noted that what is often called a miracle really is not a miracle at all, but really is providence. Now on your sheet I gave you, I have a quote there by MacArthur. I'll give you this quote because I think it's very good. I don't think it's anything I probably haven't said to you, but here's an authoritative source if you want. A miracle is when God suspends natural law to do something outside of natural law. Without natural law and against the grain of natural law. So a miracle is not according to the laws of nature or natural law. Let me rephrase that. It supersedes that. It's above that. He goes on to say, A miracle is walking on water or raising dead people. It suspends natural law, supernaturally invades time and space, and acts in a divine way that has no human explanation. So we're in a bad car wreck, and you go, man, there's a miracle they escaped. And you go, well, not really. It's providence. But there are laws of physics, and it can be explained. It is part of natural law. Anyhow, he goes on to say, um, Providence, in my mind, is a greater miracle than a miracle because it is God's accomplishing His own ends and His own, and His own purposes, not by suspending natural law, but by taking all of the elements of natural law and blending them together in a masterful way so that He achieves His purpose but never interrupts the natural course of things. It's not turning water to wine. That's a miracle. That's suspending natural law. If you leave the water there, it's just going to get stale. I don't care how long the water sets in the and the containers, it's never going to ferment and become wine. You have to change the very properties of the water to make it into wine. That's a miracle. When somebody's dead and they're in the grave and they're and they're beginning to have an odor, they're not just, you know, just oh, they just fainted. No, they're dead dead. And that person is resurrected from the dead. That is a suspension of natural law. That just doesn't happen. Unless it's a miracle. That's a miracle. So MacArthur goes on to say, it's not God suspending circumstances and acting. This is providence. It's not God suspending circumstances and acting, but taking all the contingencies, all of the factors... Actors, all of their activities, all of their thoughts and words, and somehow pulling all of that together to create exactly what He wills to do. This is far more massive. Uh, this is a far more massive miracle than just suspending natural law and acting. And you go, wow. So, providence is when God. It's controlling and over and working every little detail and possible contingencies and thoughts and actions and deeds in such a way it accomplishes His purpose. So why do I insist on this distinction? Why have I done that through the years? Well, I'm not trying to be a theological watchdog that corrects every errant word or thought. That's not my intent. Nor do I desire to be a theological nerd Knows and majors is on minutia. That's not the point here. I want to note this distinction because I want you equipped and I want you encouraged not only by the miraculous but by the providence of God, the everyday providence of God in life. That's why I do that. The Lord told Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, He said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. 
and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. There's a nautical term. It's, it's, it's becalmed seas. B, B-E, calm, calmed. Becalmed seas. That's a nautical phrase. And what it's referring to is when there's just no wind. And we think back to the, to the era of time when sailors would, would sail across vast oceans on sailing ships. And their mode of power, their, their source of power is the wind. And they are dependent on wind to move that ship. And a great fear was a becalmed sea. For in a becalmed sea, the sails go slack. There is no movement. There's not even a whisper of wind. You've heard the saying, the sea is like glass. And so the ship is dead in the water. No way to go. And they depend on what stores they have on board to live. Water and food. And a becalmed sea can last an extended period of time. And so the ship is dead in the water in the midst of a flat, windless sea surrounded by an endless horizon of water. And the ancient mariner would talk about water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Well, in this case, there's water, water everywhere, but there's not a hint of a breeze to move that ship. It's stuck. From Malachi to Mark, it's called the Solid Era. Silent era as Israel was 400 years in Egypt before God brought the deliverer in between these old covenant and new between the old testament and the new there is about 400 years and God is silent there's no signs there are no miracles from God there's no parting of the Red Sea There's no manna from heaven to feed the people. There's no pillar of cloud and fire to guide the people uh, wherever they may be going. There is no standing still of the sun in some miraculous way so a battle can be won. There's no collapsing of Jericho's walls by walking around it and shouting, walking around a city and shouting. There's no stupendous, mind-boggling miracles. There are none. God is silent. There is no direct word from God. There is no communication by God, by prophet or king to the people. None. There is no anthropomorphic or angelic appearances. There's no, oh, there's a fourth man and he looks like the Son of Man in the middle of the fire. There's none of that. There are no no appearances. None. Silent. There's no communication by God by through visions or dreams or none. They've ceased. There's no written communication via inspired Scripture. At the close of Malachi, we don't go one day, oh, well, God sent us another book. Here it is. Maccabees or whatever. It's over. It's done. It's becalmed. There is no audible whisper. Just decades and centuries of silence. Oh, but God does not always speak in the roaring wind or the earth ripping earthquake or the devouring fire. Sometimes He speaks in a still, small voice, so quiet, such a whisper. If you're not really listening, you will not hear. And you'll not discern. And you'll not appreciate what God is doing. 
silence, as in the silent era, does not mean God is not present. And it does not mean that God is not active. Oh, but He is. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we read, But when the fullness, that is pleremo, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. What does that phrase, fullness of time, mean? When time was full, God sent His Son. The elect Dr. Sproul writes that the English language falls short in translating that idea. If we took a glass and we filled it to the brim with water, we would say that the glass is full. But Playremo suggests a glass under the faucet with water cascading over the sides of the glass, full to the point of overflowing. You got the picture. I think it's a great word picture. This glass is almost full, but that's not Playremo. If I put this glass under a running faucet and let the water run into it till the glass is overflowing, now I've got fullness of time. That is what the Bible means when it refers to fullness of time. History was overflowing with anticipation. All of history from the creation onward was converging in that moment in history when Jesus Christ would be born. And yet for the 400 years, four centuries prior to His birth, God is quiet. No miracle. No audible declaration. God is quiet. How? How will the universal, inclusive, messianic king in his kingdom, how? How can it come? How can it be? Surely it's going to take a miracle. Well, of course, we get to the miraculous birth and all that, but we're talking about getting the nursery ready. We're talking about setting the stage. How can that happen? Let's think about God's providence and silence for just a moment. When Paul went as a missionary to preach and he would go into a large city, where would he go? Synagogues. Where were those synagogues? Well, you read the New Testament, just about in every place he went, there's a synagogue. Hmm. Well, what are they doing there? How did they get there? The building of synagogues likely, likely begins during the Babylonian and Persian uh, uh, reigns while Israel is conquered. And they can't go to Jerusalem. They can't go to the temple. They can't worship. So they build synagogues where people in towns can get together for the reading of the Scripture. And so they build them, and they're being built everywhere. And they probably that building probably really expands under the Persians and even more so under the Greeks. And after AD 70, with the destruction of the temple, this building is accelerated even again. So when Paul walks into a to Philippi or Rome, uh, yeah, Rome, or he goes to uh, Corinth, or he's down in Ephesus, and he walks into a synagogue, and they know he's a rabbi, and he has the right then to open the scripture, which would be the Old Testament, and he opens the scripture, but he has a he has a a ready-made congregation to preach to because they're gathering at the synagogue and the synagogues are built under pagan authorities. That's when they really begin to spread. But let's go further. What is it that every missionary knows how important and how much they need this tool? And this tool is a translation of the Scriptures in their language. 
talk about our brother in Thailand, and, and he, he's just been working for the last two years in language. It's kind of hard to go to a place if you don't have some way of gathering the people and then begin to preach if you don't have the language and particularly if you don't have the Word of God in that language. But you know, from the very beginning, Christianity was a religion with a book. How did that happen? Well, under Alexander the Great, there's the extension of the Greek culture. And that, that, that spreads through basically all the, that was known in the Eastern world at that time. So we're talking Persia and Egypt and what was Babylonian, the Assyrians, and, and down into, I already said Egypt, and down into Egypt and then back up into the, the Fertile Crest that even sliding over into Europe. All of that has definitely sliding over into Europe because that's where he comes from. That falls under the, the, the influence of, of Greek culture. What is the dominant language? Greek. Greek becomes the dominant language of the world. Much like we would say at one time English was. What was the English, what's the what's the language of trade? Well, in this time, in the time of Mark, the language of trade is Greek. What is the language of, of commerce? What's the language of education? What's the language of the arts? What's the language of the common people? What's the language that people use in everyday life? Greek. Well, all of a sudden, by the mighty providential hand of God, when Mark comes on the scene, they have already, the Bible has already, which is the Old Testament at the time, has already been translated into Greek. So that when a missionary goes into an area, goes into a synagogue, to a ready-made congregation, and he opens the Word of God, guess what language he's reading it in? Greek. Oh, they can hear it. It's not like Latin Mass that nobody gets. They get it. Because it's in their language. And then, what is it if you have a ready-made place to meet and a ready-made language, a religion with a book, if you can't get there? What if travel's impossible? Oh, but in the Roman Empire, we have what's called the Pax Romana, a thousand years of basically enforced peace. We have highways built. We have shipping lanes established. And you read the New Testament, how's Paul getting around from place to place? Usually he's hopping on a boat. And you sell them from this place to that place. How did that happen? That happened under the Romans. Now you have another quote, I believe, on your sheet by Machen. And I want to read that quote at this point from Machen in your hearing. It was not by chance that Jesus was born in the golden age of the Roman Empire when the whole of the civilized world was for the first time unified, so that a movement started in an obscure corner could spread like wildfire. When the gospel came, it was listened to. God had shaped the course of history to prepare for it. For the first time, the whole world was open. Roman law and Greek culture had made the world one great community in such an age. The banner of the cross, wherever raised, would soon be seen by all. How is this king going to have such a vast kingdom? How is he going to be known as all over the earth and spread? Because God has set the stage. He's prepared the nursery. And what has begun in that little backwater village ignites. Because God has so said it. By miracles? No. By providence. By taking all the contingencies, all the possibilities, all the people, and working out His purpose to accomplish His ends. Now, isn't that worth a hot diggity dog. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I mean, that's, I'm like MacArthur, that's even more miraculous than a miracle. 
Yes, God used prophets. He used miracles. But from Malachi to Mark, zip. And what you see is what we call the unseen hand of God. The guiding, ruling, providential hand of God. Okay, so what? We come to the closing. So what? So, you tell me that your spiritual and physical life is one of ho-hum. You exist in a becalmed sea. One day's like the next, and time drags on, and the mundane is just about intolerable. And then the doldrums of life, that's also a nautical term, by the way, the doldrums. It was a place that was known for becalmed seas around the equator. The doldrums of life are punctuated by storms. You all of a sudden go from the becalmed sea to a hurricane force in your life. Some unknown, unexpected sickness hits you or somebody you love. Some tragedy occurs. You lose your job. Death takes a family member. We don't sing it anymore, and I really don't recommend it, but there's an old hymn that, that I will quote the words from here. It's called Father Alone. Tempted and tried, we're off made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long. Tried, Lord, why, why is it like this? And it can be from the becalmed sea to the terror of a raging sea. And God is silent. No miracle. No prophet. No new inspired word of God. And you wonder, where is the God I confess my faith in? Then we look at a wider global plane for a moment. And we know that our nation is in moral jeopardy. And I know that we tend to always be crying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, but... And this is only anecdotal. But I do believe we're in more moral jeopardy to this day than I've known in all my lifetime. And I often think about Psalm 9. It says in verse 17, The wicked shall return to Sheol, and all, all, all the nations that forget God. Every one. It doesn't have to be a communist enemy nation. All nations that forget God. And then we consider that our nation is threatened militarily, our very existence. Russia, the bear, is prowling and growling and threatening. Even just this past week, I think again, they put out another nuclear threat. You better not do this, Poland. An evil axis has formed, not like we've seen in, since my father's generation. Iran, Russia, and China. The New York Times had an article, and in that article they wrote, quote, the closer ties, I'm speaking of these three countries, the closer ties raise an alarming prospect. What if all three countries decide to confront the U.S. simultaneously sometime soon in an effort to overwhelm the American ability to respond? And that's a real threat. Ah, but God is silent. There are no miracles. But is God absent? 
God not working? Is His unseen hand no longer busy? Two points. First, do not confuse silence for uh, for inactivity. Do not confuse the silence, what we would consider the silence of God for divine inactivity. God is not asleep. He's not gone on a vacation. Don't confuse what we would consider inactivity as silence for inactivity. Excuse me. Understand that we live in an era where miracles, if they even happen, are very, very rare. But providence is a daily reality. A daily reality. And when you realize that, marvel at God's wisdom and be encouraged. Listen to the psalmist. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. And then hear this from the writer of Hebrews. Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Don't let your knees be jumping together like this because you're so scared. Lift up your weak hands. Strengthen your knees. Why? Make straight paths for your feet so what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Why? Because the God of providence is alive and well in our life individually and globally. Recognize that God's special providence Really, really, His special providence overshadows and concerns His church, His people. Because the people of God are called the apple of His eye. They're called His lambs, His children, His jewels. And for those, He has a particular care of providence. And the care of His people is paramount. It's entirely gracious, but it is so amazing. And you know what I'm talking about because you've been through places in your life, you thought, how under heaven am I going to get through this? And it's not that God stops time, sends an angel, does some miracle, parts some sea. No, that doesn't happen. But you come out the other side and you realize, oh, God really was there. I didn't see it because I was so thick-headed and looking for something that isn't real rather than realizing the real presence of God. And secondly, and I close with this, consider again the momentous nature of the advents of Jesus Christ. First advent, second advent. Think back to Mark's audience. As I said a week or so ago, here they are probably in the catacombs. Above them, terror is reigning under Nero. They are being accused of every ungodly, immoral thing you can think of. They're being hounded and persecuted to death. And here they are meeting. And somebody stands up and they have a word from God. God hasn't talked in a long time. And they start reading. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger. Oh, and they heard that messenger. They know of that messenger. Oh. Think back to Mark's first audience. There's years of silence and suddenly the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple and here He is. Boom. And that's the way Mark starts. Right out of the gate like a horse off the blocks. And then think about and live in the reality of the second advent. 
suddenly in a day that you think not. The arrogant, according to Malachi, and the evildoers will be a stubble. And the righteous, the saved, will go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, can you really be so blind? Are you really that? Yes, you are. You're so hard-hearted, so hard-headed, you cannot see the providence of God in this world. I'm sorry for you. Your life must be one of drudgery and fear and meaninglessness because what does it hold for you? Oh, maybe you achieved some great something, but so what? It's like that breaking of the dawn. In just a split second, it's gone. And then what have you got? Nothing. So you lived your whole life to feel good about yourself and to feed your flesh for what? And all that time you ignore and deny and reject the very presence of God through His providence. You are pitiful. But there is hope for you. Because I'll tell you, I was just like that. And it took the power of God to put life in me and to give me the, the gift of faith. And to the believer, oh believer, do not become so complacent or so fearful that all your hope lies in some miraculous something happening and you miss the day-by-day unseen hand of God through His providence. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the Gospel according to Mark. We're eager, Lord, to get into the book. We want to see what You will teach us and how You will instruct us and correct us and guide us through Your Word. Lord, we pray that these preparatory messages, these, con- these messages of context will be used by You to feed Your sheep and to convict the unconverted. So we pray in the blessed holy name of Jesus. Amen.